Yeah. So um, I'm David Reich. Uh, I'm a population geneticist. Um, I uh, study patterns of genetic variation um, and differences amongst human populations around the world. And my, my big interest is in how people got to be the way they are today and how the differences amongst human populations came to be the way they are today. Um, I got into this field. Uh, I was a student of David Goldstein, who was in turn a student of Luca Cavalli-Sforza. So Luca Cavalli-Sforza was sort of the grandfather of uh, the field of studying human evolution and human population history. He realized, as did Alan Wilson, that uh, you can take differences in, amongst the genomes of different people in the world and uh, use those differences to learn which people are most closely related to which other people, which populations are most closely related to which other populations. At the time that I did my PhD, which was in the late 90s, the amount of data that was available was about 100,000 times less than that is the case today. And that was the type of data that Luca Cavalli-Sforza had available. The ability to learn about history was very thin at the time, but already he and others could see that people had come out of Africa from a single founder population around 100,000 or 50,000 years ago, and that people moving out of Africa had dispersed around the world. But the details were impossible to discern from the data that was available at the time. And what Luca was like was he was, uh, is like as someone who is deeply immersed in archaeology and history and linguistics and was reading onto those very rich fields uh, the little additional information that genetics could provide. But what's happened in that time, since that time, the last 15 years, is genetics has become an extremely powerful type of information. It's as important in terms of the information it can convey about prehistory as archaeology and as, about, and as linguistics. And it's really emerging as a third way to, to make inquiries about the past before writing. And I think that that's what I'm interested in learning about, trying to take advantage of that massive new source of information to understand how people are related to each other. Um, so my career has been really uh, starting from being a student of Luca Cavalli-Sforza's Cavalli student. His, my, he's my academic grandparent, um, working initially on some data that was available and generated by he, him and his colleagues, and then really uh, taking advantage of the genomic revolution and, and using that information to learn about history, and in particular with ancient DNA in the last five to seven years. Um, uh, so I, I, think that, I think that there's a sort of interesting phenomenon that's going on that has to do with um, this new type of information, this new type of data suddenly coming into the room um, where it wasn't available before. So previously, the understanding of, for example, what population transformations were like, what the peopling of certain parts of the world was like, was like, what lifestyles were like, was the province solely of archaeologists and cultural anthropologists or um, biological anthropologists and paleontologists. And now this new sort of information is coming into the room and is speaking to many of the same questions. So I think that in part there is a interesting friction related to the new type of information that is um, coming into a field which previously hadn't had access to that information. So I think it's a little bit threatening to people who are already in, that, in those fields that there's a new type of information. Another thing that's going on is that population geneticists such as myself are a bit unschooled. Um, we haven't gone through graduate school in anthropology, we haven't gone through graduate school in linguistics, we haven't gone through graduate school in history, and yet we're making very strong statements about these people's fields. Um, and it's a little bit like barbarians are walking into your room um, and 
but you can't really ignore barbarians because they have information and power and weapons and technology that you didn't have access to before. I, th I think a concrete example of this is um, work on population history in India that um, I've been involved in and that I continue to be very intensively involved in. So the history of Indian populations is a very um, rich, it's one of the most incredibly diverse places in the world, India, with all these ethnic groups. There's more than 4,000 very well-defined ethnic groups which practice mutual endogamy and don't mix with each other in practice. Um, and it's a very complex people place. People look very different. People have extremely different cultures and histories and traditions. Um, there's a great deal of anthropology and anthropological study that has gone on in India to try to understand the population history and the context and the relationships to places outside of India. So in work that we got involved in, in beginning in 2007, we studied, started studying at a whole genome level, at the whole organism level, the um, DNA from initially 25 diverse Indian populations. It's now more than 200 that we've studied. And we picked these populations to be as diverse as possible. And capturing the linguistic diversity of India. So in the south of India, people speak languages which are called Dravidian, which are not related to languages outside the Indian subcontinent. In the north, people speak Indo-European languages, which are related to the languages of Europe and Armenia and Iran. And uh, there are some other language groups also. Um, and we picked people to represent the diversity of these language groups, uh, diversity of social status as encoded in the caste system, and we studied the genetic variation. And what we saw was an amazingly simple pattern. So the simple pattern was that the great majority of Indian groups today are descended from a mixture of basically just two ancestral populations, um, one which we called the ancient um, ancestral North Indian and one which we called the ancestral South Indian. Um, everybody is mixed in India without exception, no exceptions, even the most isolated groups, which are hunter-gatherers living in the living in, in the forest or uh, isolated places, everybody is mixed with at least 20% of each of these ancestries. So this is a surprise that comes from the genetics. There's no pure unmixed ancestral population of Indians. People who are Dravidian, who are, come from the south of India, tend to have more of the and ancient South Indian ancestry, um, the people from the north, uh, the uh, people who speak Indo-Europeans tend to have more of the ancient North Indian ancestry, um, that, but there's variability in proportion. People of traditionally higher caste status, both within southern and within northern India, tend to have more of the ancient northern Indian ancestry. So what was this reflecting? Um, the other thing you can see in the data is that there's an intense sex bias to the event. So that if you look at people's proportions of ancient North Indian ancestry, which ranges from about 20% to 80%, depending on which group you're in, um, the ancient North Indian ancestry is coming primarily from your, your paternal side. So most of the ancestry from uh, that you get, which is ancient North Indian, which is related to West Eurasians, related to Middle Easterners and Central Asians and, and, and Europeans even, um, most of that ancestry is coming from your male side. Most of your ancient South Indian ancestry is coming from your female side. That in type of ancestry is not related to anything outside the Indian subcontinent. It's completely local. And so what this reflects is an amazing and profound and convulsive historical mixture event. And so this was very interesting because what it implied was some historical phenomenon that was not clearly documented by archaeology, by anthropology, that, that which there were debates, but there was no question that this had occurred. Um, we were really interested in this event 
and we tried to follow it up, and we successfully followed up. A lot of our research, also on Neanderthal population history, which I've worked on very closely with Swante Pebo, was driven in terms of the methods we developed by this India question, trying to understand what happened in population history in India. And when we followed this up, our big question was, when had this mixture occurred between people of this ancient North Indian and ancient South Indian ancestry? Because it was a profound and convulsive mixture that affected every population in India without exception. And so what we developed is a set of statistical techniques that used a very simple principle to try to estimate the age when the mixture occurred in the ancestry of the present-day person. And the way this idea works is very simple. So when you are a mixture of two people of different ethnicities, for example, you have one of your, you have two copies of each chromosome, you have 23 pairs of chromosomes, and a first-generation offspring of a person, say, a ancient South Indian and ancient North Indian ancestry will have one chromosome of three of entirely ANI ancestry, ancient North Indian, and the other chromosome three of entirely ASI, ancient South Indian ancestry. When they form a mixed offspring, a kid, they'll break those chromosomes once or two times per chromosome per generation and send a hybrid, a mosaic chromosome, down to their kid, which will have perhaps the first third ANI next third ASI, next third ANI. And so you have a regular breaking one or two times per generation until today you have a broken up chromosome where the number of breaks reflects how many generations it's been. So you just count the breaks to see how, old ago, how long ago the mixture happened. And when we did that, what you find is that the mixture in India happened between two to 4,000 years ago completely, that prior to that there were unmixed populations in India. So amazingly what you could see from the genetic data was a event, which was a really, a, you could actually see cultural change. You could see that in India, prior to 4,000 years ago, the populations there looked nothing like they do today. There were unmixed populations of related to West Eurasians, and they were related to uh, ancient uh, South Indians. Um, after that, there was a profound and convulsive population mixture event, which affected every group without exception, even the ones that are isolated and outcasts outside the tribal system. And then within Beginning about 2,000 years ago, the whole system locked in, and the mixing stopped. And you can see that because there are these founder events, relatively small number of people giving rise to the large number of people that exist in any one group today. And these founder events, there's very strong endogamy in India, and so you can actually see that a lot of people in a group today will descend from the same founders, and if there was even a little bit of genetic input into those groups from outside over that 100 generations, it would be disrupted, that signal. So what we can see is a cultural change where there's initially massive um, acceptance of mixture or massive occurrence of mixture. It's a sex-biased event, which probably means it has to do with power. And, and then it locks in and there's the caste system sets in. And so this is very interesting in the context of the anthropology, because the, one of the leading views from, in, in biological anthropology was a kind of revisionist view about the um, caste system in India. Caste system was an invention of colonialism. Um, so um, uh, Nicholas Dirks, for example, was arguing that the caste system really wasn't very important prior to the British. The British sort of found this system in India. They strengthened it as a way of ruling India. They put themselves on top, and they used it as a way of organizing society, and they systematized it. They imposed it across different parts of India. To many extents, that's true. They did use the caste system. They did systematize it. Um, but it's wrong to say that it was not strong, and you can see in the genetic data that it's actually been around for thousands of years. So you can see this in the genetic data. So for, in the case of India, there is an incredibly old, long-standing debate in India about the um, events that uh, uh, led to the 
amazing mixes that have occurred in India. So India is an amazing mixed place. It is a mixture of languages, of Indo-European languages related to European languages, and um, and also of Dravidian languages not related to languages outside of Europe, as well as other language groups. It's a mix of agricultural systems. It's a mix, it's at the collision of the Chinese and Mesopotamian agricultural systems with rice and certain other domesticates coming from China and uh, wheat and um, barley and goats and sheep and uh, coming from the West. Um, and it's a mix in all sorts of ways. And uh, it's a mix genetically. So a uh, question is how this came about. So the linguistics is a very important line of evidence here. Um, and it's a very contentious and interesting line of evidence. And the question is not still resolved. And that's what genetics and what I am sort of most engaged in right now is trying to understand. So there is this phenomenon of the Indo-European languages. These are these languages, like English, uh, like almost all the languages of Europe except for Basque and Hungarian and Estonian and Finnish, which are, and a couple of others, uh, which are spoken across this extremely broad region of the world even before the ex movement of these languages to the Americas with, with, uh, and elsewhere through, through colonialism. Um, and these languages are... Um, have a very funny distribution. They're spoken in Europe, and they're spoken in Iran and India and Armenia, but they haven't been spoken in the Middle East and the Near East for 5,000 years, mostly. And the reason we know that is Near Eastern languages um, is the, the Near East is the place where writing was invented, and we know these languages weren't Indo-European. So you have this strange bilobed distribution with a lobe in Iran and India and a lobe in Europe and a gap in between. And how did this come about? So this is one of the, one of the great mysteries of uh, the West. Um, and it was discovered in the late 18th century by a British magistrate working in India who, who was schooled in Greek and Latin from his public school education in Britain and realized that the Sanskrit he was studying was just like Greek and Latin in its grammar and its structure. And he realized that these were closely related languages. And this mystery of how Indo-European spread over such a vast region and what the historical underpinnings of it would have been is an ongoing and, and, and remains a mystery. So the fact that these, lang these languages are in India has, always, has, le has led to the hypothesis that they came in from somewhere else, from the north, from the west, um, and that perhaps maybe this would be a vector for the movement of these people. And the other reason that people think that is that when you have languages coming in, it's usually that languages are brought, brought by uh, but not always, but usually that there's large movements of people. Exceptions are Hungarian, where the Hungarians are really mostly not descended from the people who brought Hungarian to Hungary. But in general, mo languages typically f tend to follow large movements of people. On the other hand, uh, when you have a major um, demographic um, once agriculture is established in a place, as it has been established for five to 8,000 years in India, it's very hard for a group to make a dent on it. The British didn't make any demographic dent on India, even though they politically ruled it for a couple of thousand, couple hundred years. So, um, so it's a mystery how this occurred, and I think it remains a mystery how this occurred. But what we know is that the likely timing of this event is probably around three to 4,000 years ago, which exactly corresponds. The, the, the timing of the arrival of Indo-European language corresponds to the timing of the mixture event. You guys. This debate is happening now. So this is, this is, this is being substantially, the mo debate is substantially moving right now. And the reason is DNA. So, um, so you know, the, it's, it, the linguistics is actually making amazing and interesting continued progress, um, but the um, DNA evidence is very radical and important. And so what the 
uh, Renfrew, Colin Renfrew's argument was, and it was a very important argument, and, and until this year, that was the primary working hypothesis for most people of the origin of Indo-European languages, is the, what he called the Anatolian hypothesis. And the idea of the Anatolian hypothesis is that languages arise, um, that Indo-European language is the language spoken by the people who invented farming um, in Anatolia. And then we know from the archaeology that farming expands radically and rapidly into Europe, beginning about 8,500 years ago, first in Greece, and then radiating out from Greece until it reaches Scandinavia and Britain about 6,000 years ago. So between 8,500 years ago and 6,000 years ago, it spreads right across Europe in a wave, a wave of advance. Um, so what he thought was that a plausible explanation is that the movement of Indo-European languages into Europe was the expansion, uh, was due to the expansion of farming. It came hand in hand with farming. Um, and uh, similarly, the movement of Indo-European languages into Iran and India was due to the similar expansion of farming uh, from Anatolia and the Near East to the East. So that was the hypothesis. Um, and uh, the linguistics tended to lean the other way. It tended to support that there was more of a connection of these languages to the northern steppe. But I think that the evidence based on archaeology was winning the day. Um, now, um, the best evidence Colin Renfrew had and colleagues had was especially was that once that, la that languages typically, people typically change languages due to force of numbers, due to large numbers of people moving. And he was, what he argued was that we know there's a mass movement of people into Europe beginning 8,500 years ago. That was confirmed by genetics beginning in 2009. Um, but we don't know of any major movement of people into Europe since um, the arrival of agriculture. And not only that, it would have been very difficult for there to be a major demographic on, in, impact on Europe after that point. You know, for, for me, um, the um, coming into this field has been... Um, has been really made possible by my collaboration with Svante Pepo, um, who brought me on as a kind of one of the primary analysts looking at population history, interpreting the Neanderthal data that they produced in um, uh, beginning in 2007 um, to try to learn about history and the relationships of Neanderthals to modern humans. And uh, what Svante invented was a technology for looking at whole genome, whole genome, the whole, the whole, whole genetic code, basically, of um, ancient, ancient, ancient humans, um, and trying to, uh, and, and getting that data, and once we have that data, we can compare it to uh, present-day humans and other ancient samples to learn about history. This technology is um, like the invention of a new scientific instrument. It's a momentous new scientific instrument, like the invention of a telescope or a microscope. Um, and when you have a new instrument, anything you look at is new. So for example, when you look with a microscope into under in a, into a bit of pond water, you see cells for the first time. That's what people saw um, at the in the in um, when they first used Leeuwenhoek. When they first used microscopes, they discovered cells. They discovered microbes. They discovered cell walls. All these things one couldn't see before. Great surprises. When you have a new instrument, you can see new things. So my experience when I began working with Swante was when we had this whole genome data from a Neanderthal, which is an archaic human. The ones we were studying initially lived 40,000 years ago in Croatia and Europe, um, was that those samples were more closely related to non-Africans than to Africans. There were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was very clear genetically, and there were multiple ways that we could see that this had occurred. Uh, since that time, 
line of evidence after line of evidence, way of looking after the data, way after looking at the data, has shown that modern humans today are descended from, a, uh, non-Africans today are descended from a mixture of uh, Neanderthals like these ones that we have data from, from Croatia, um, and um, mon modern humans. Um, and that it's somewhere between 1% to 3% of the ancestry of non-Africans today is from Neanderthals. So that was a big surprise, and that it was against the orthodoxy, it surprised us, because Svante and I were both from a world in genetics which was very much the out-of-Africa world. We, had, we were part of a triumphant march of people saying, oh, it wasn't lots of different independent origins of modern humans around the world, which is what some people thought before. Alan Wilson, which was Svante's lab, and Luca Cavalli-Sorta were part of this triumphant march of genetics saying, look, we all descend, have a common origin about 50,000 years ago from an exit from Africa, and then there's deeper roots of human variation in Africa. That's what's going on. Yeah, Milper Wolpoff, right? So multi-regionalism, the idea of... Um, of, of um, multiple independent origins and parallel evolution with gene exchange in different places. And basically that view is wrong in the sense that the basic story is that most of our lineage comes from Africa, 98% of it in the most case for non-Africans, um, uh, around 50 or 100,000 years ago, somewhere in that range. Um, that's basically the story. Yeah, I think so. I think that it's a completely radically new type of information about the past that it's a great gift to be able to have access to. It's a great surprise. Who would have thought DNA survived that long? Um, and um, it provides direct information about population relationships and it allows you to connect the skeletons you get data from to archaeological cultures and to different other ancient and modern people. It's an amazing technology. The, the access we have to prehistory currently is through linguistics and through archaeology, both important fields, very exciting fields. So linguistics is the study of languages and their relationships and the reconstruction of ancestral languages. And it provides information about what languages were like prior to the invention of writing because the language, bits of the language are inherited through the word systems. Um, similarly, archaeology provides records of the material culture, the stone tools and other artifacts people left behind, as well as some skeletons of people. But understanding how people are related to each other has been basically nearly impossible based on archaeological and linguistic evidence. My experience working with Svante, I, I really, since 2007, have been working very closely with Svante, uh, collaborating with him, um, has been that um, the data that we've looked at from the incredible samples they've successfully obtained data from um, has yielded surprise after surprise, basically because nobody had ever gotten to look at data like this before. So, um, so first there was the Neanderthals, and then there was this pinky bone from Siberia, uh, from southern Siberia, that um, at the end of the Neanderthal project, Svante sort of said to me, you know, we have this amazing genome-wide data from another archaic human, uh, from a little pinky bone of a little girl um, from, um, from southern Siberia, from a Siberian cave, um, and would you like to get involved in analyzing it? And when we analyzed it, it was an incredible surprise. So this individual was not um, a Neanderthal. They were, in fact, much more distantly from, related to a Neanderthal than any two humans are today from each other. Um, and it was not a modern human. It was some very distant cousin of a, ne of a Neanderthal that was living in central um, in, in Siberia, in Central Asia, um, at the time that this uh, girl lived. 
Um, and then when we analyzed the genome of this uh, little girl, um, we saw that she was related to people in New Guinea and Australia. She had contributed, a person related to her had contributed about 5% to the genomes to people in New Guinea and Australia and related people. An interbreeding event nobody had known about before. It was completely unexpected. It wasn't in anybody's philosophy or anybody's prediction. It was a new event um, that was driven by the data, not driven by people's, um, you know, uh, presuppositions or, or, or previous ideas. Um, and this is what ancient DNA does for us. It actually, when you look at the data, it doesn't always just play into one person's theory or the other. It doesn't just play into the Indo-European steppe hypothesis or the Anatolian hypothesis. Sometimes it raises, and again and again, it raises something completely new, like the Denisovan finger bone and the interbreeding of uh, and gene flow from Denisovans into uh, Australians and New Guineans. So this was an example of a surprise, but another example like this um, uh, that we encountered was in our work, um, as part of our work on India and part of our work on Neanderthals, we were developing tests of population mixture, um, tests of whether present-day groups today um, are the result of mixture of, of, of other ancient groups. Um, this is something that Luca Cavalli-Sforza wasn't able to do because data, his data and the data that people like him were looking at was too thin at the time, but now we can do it. So when we developed these tests of population mixture, what we found, what we did is we applied them to different people around the world. And in 2012, um, we applied them, for example, to Northern Europeans, for example, French, but it would also apply to English or to Germans or to Scandinavians or to many other populations in Northern and even Central and Southern Europe. And we saw that everybody there is mixed. And one of the mixing populations looks today most like Southern Europeans, like isolated people from Southern Europe, like Sardinians. And the other population of all people is Native Americans. So this was a huge surprise, completely unexpected. Why Native Americans and Southern Europeans give rise to Northern Europeans? It was definitely Native Americans, not East Asians, not uh, present-day Siberians. It was definitely Native Americans. And what we proposed in 2012 was that what we were seeing evidence of was evidence of an ancient mixture event that had affected Northern Europeans. And um, between uh, early European farmers related to isolated Southern European populations and a group which we called the ancient North Eurasians. So the ancient North Eurasians were a population that was once distributed across parts of North Eurasia and before 15,000 years ago went into the Americas or in mixed form probably, but went into the Americas and became Native Americans, but also at some point went into Europe. And so you have this ancient North Eurasian population that uh, once existed there but doesn't exist today because it was replaced after the Ice Age. So that was what we proposed. So it was what we had proposed was a ghost population, a population that we're predicting statistically based on the patterns that's left on present, present day people, but that doesn't exist anymore in the place where it once was. I mean, so, so the ice ages are very profound events and there has been an ice age in Eurasia in the last 45,000 years. So there is a very severe um, cold period with glaciers covering most of, much of Europe and much of North America. Um, uh, with the maximum being between about 26,000 and, and 19,000 years ago. So this was a profound event that made it impossible to live in many places in the world and radically changed the climate everywhere else. And so that uh, people's habitats were disrupted and people presumably moved around. We can see that very clearly in the archaeology. You don't need the genetics for that. You see that there's big transformations. There's missing whole periods when there are people missing from Northern Europe or from North America. Um, well, from Northern Europe um, uh, during this time. And then there's repeopling events um, following the retreat of the glaciers uh, into North America. There's a repeopling from the north and into, there's a peopling from the north after the retreats of the glaciers. And in Europe, there's a repeopling from the south. Um, 
And these are profound events, and they are naturally expected to be accompanied by population changes and transformations. In Central Asia, um, there are also population and dramatic changes. The present-day people of Siberia are almost certainly post-Ice Age repeopling from the south, um, re replacing these ancient North Eurasians who migrated to the Americas and, and also to Europe. Um, so yes, there's very dramatic changes. I mean, we're currently working on Ice Age Europe um, and uh, genetics of Ice Age Europe, and we see extremely dramatic changes associated with the Ice Age um, and uh, population replacements and changes in turn I think it's a new type of information, and I think that you know I've been at a series of interdisciplinary meetings between linguists and archaeologists and genetics geneticists recently, and the genetics sort of. Um, um, gives sucker to, to some people, but it doesn't make everybody happy. Nobody's completely happy with the genetic data. So um, it doesn't sort of perfectly play into anyone's theory. Um, and, um, but in general, there is this um, battle line that's been drawn between people who support what's called the Anatolian hypothesis, the arrival of Indo-European languages from the Near East um, with farming, and uh, people who think it arrives later through... Uh, a, um, through a homeland in the steppe. And in general, the genetics is tending to support the steppe hypothesis because in the last year, we um, have identified um, a very strong pattern that this ancient North Eurasian ancestry that you see in Europe today, we now know when it arrived in Europe. It, it arrived 4,500 years ago from the east, from the steppe, and it now constitutes about half the ancestry of Northern Europeans. So what we showed in the genetic data is that around 4,500 years ago, at least in Central Europe, there's a massive population replacement with new people coming in. The old people disappear or uh, get marginalized, and the populations ever afterward have very large percentages of ancestry from the east, and in particular, they have ancestry that's closely related to a group called the Yamnaya, which is the first mobile population of the steppe. They had used the recent domestication of the horse and the recent invention of the wheel to be able to herd their cattle and horses in the steppe lands, which were previously inaccessible to humans. Um, and uh, these people uh, spread all over the steppe. They spread into parts of Siberia, and they also spread west into Europe. And what we've shown in the genetics data is they actually replaced, or their descendants replaced, much of the population. So we now have a massive population replacement in Central Europe beginning at least 4,500 years ago um, that is so late that it must have brought new languages to the people. Um, and therefore, it's highly likely that at least some of the Indo-European languages in Europe owe their origin to migrations from the steppe. Um, and this is um, sort of a very exciting development. And it means that the Anatolian hypothesis cannot be an explanation for all the languages of Europe, because some of them have to come through the steppe. Um, and it also may, means that possibly uh, there are ways that um, uh, one needs to reconsider the possible, possible spread spread processes in light of the genetic data. Um, I was at Harvard College as an undergraduate. I was interested, my best subjects in high school were history and biology. Um, and I started out in, so in, a, in a major called social studies or sociology here. Um, and I was interested in, uh, I took that major for my first two years. And then I switched into physics for my final two years. Um, I then thought about going to graduate school in physics, but um, and even applied and got a place somewhere. Um, and but I deferred um, because I wasn't sure I wanted to be a physicist or that I was strong enough to be a physicist. Um, and so I had as part of 
um, people uh, I had applied to these fellowships to go to England, um, uh, and um, as part of one of them, um, I had to apply to colleges at Oxford. Um, and I didn't get any of the fellowships, but I got into an Oxford college, um, and my parents paid for me to go to this Oxford college, uh, where I went to do another second BA in biochemistry. I started a second BA in biochemistry, um, and then I switched out of that after a couple of terms, and I switched into a master's degree um, where I was going to do some research and end up going into medicine in the United States. So I started applying to medical schools in the United States. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, I um, applied to medical schools, I got into medical school, and I kept working on this research. And then at the end of a couple of years, um, I was ready to go back to ready to go to the United States to go to medical school, and they said, "Come back next summer, and you can have a PhD based on what you did." It was in this field of population genetics. I was just looking for something to do, and it thought it looked interesting. Um, I didn't think this was going to be my life's work, and so I ended up coming to Harvard and MIT for medical school, um, and I came back the next summer and finished my research. And then, I, as part of the medical school, there was a research requirement, and so I did a postdoc. I started a postdoc in this area. Um, and then I never finished medical school because the postdoc went very well. Um, my sort of day job as a professor at Harvard was studying population um, medical genetics, disease gene mapping. Um, and I um, have been focused, I focused between 2003 and 2009 most of my effort on trying to understand genetic causes for health disparities between African Americans, Latinos, and Europeans. And Africans, Americans, and Latinos are populations of mixed ancestry. They have some African and some Native American and some European ancestry. And the hypothesis that we were interested in was that the differences in ancestry are conveying differences in risk for disease. For example, African Americans get more prostate cancer than other populations. And the hypothesis we had was that this is because there are some genetic risk factors for prostate cancer that are inherited from African Americans, African ancestors, and we could find them by studying the history of mixture in African Americans. So African Americans are about 80% African, 20% European, a little bit of Native American ancestry. And what we developed in the course of this work for medical genetics is many of the tools that we're now using to study population history. And in this case, what we developed was a technique for screening through the genome of each person and painting a person's genome according to where they inherit European and African ancestry segments. So everybody's genome is a mosaic of the segments of DNA they got from their ancestors, and we can precisely paint with genome-wide data where an African-American person has West African and European and Native American ancestry. And so what our idea was, was instead looking for places where instead of the average of 80% African ancestry and African Americans with prostate cancer, it would jump up to 85% or 90. So given that you're an African American with prostate cancer, we're going to, you probably have an enhanced probability of getting African ancestry at the place in the genome that causes prostate cancer. So let's look for more than average. So this is what we did. We looked in a thousand people with prostate cancer, fifteen hundred people with prostate cancer, and we saw a rise from eighty to eighty-five percent on one place on chromosome eight, which contains many small genetic risk factors for prostate cancer that together um, are all more common in Africans than in Europeans, and together entirely explain the difference in in in, in, in risk and for the disease across populations. So, for example, if you look at African Americans who have all European ancestry at this one place, and there are many, they have the risk of, Af of European Americans overall. Um, and so this is a technique that we developed to study history. So we mostly worked on this technique, my laboratory worked on this technique between 2003 and 2009, developing the statistics 
projects for it, developing the laboratory tools, because I have a wet laboratory that's wetted to a statistical laboratory, and then applying it to real data and real diseases. And then I started switching more and more once that field matured and once I started working with Svante Pabo on the Neanderthal project. And beginning in 2007, I started working very strongly with Svante Pabo on the Neanderthal project. Um, and then beginning in 2013, Svante helped me to open up my own ancient DNA laboratory here in Boston to study some of the topics he wasn't interested in studying himself, um, mostly population transformations after the Ice Age. Um, and that's sort of what the work of the last three years has been. It's been turning ancient DNA into an industrial process, studying very large numbers of samples, moving away from the model of studying just one or two or three amazing, interesting samples and studying dozens or hundreds of people and really understanding how in carefully constructed time transects through different places in the world, populations have changed over time. It's important to, it's important to be extremely careful and to say true things that are extremely well supported by genetic data that cuts out 95% of what one might say. So I think that what we are trying to do is to try to be very, very, very cautious and careful about the things we say, and that when we publish something, to say things that are very clear, strong, and correct as much as we can. Now, surely we'll make mistakes sometimes, but we try to actually not be speculative and to say very confident things. Um, I think that um, once we do that, we are in a place where uh, we can defend what we say, and we could send, uh, and 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 we have an obligation to report what we what we can find, what we find, regardless of of you know how it plays into a a, a discussion. Um, I think in general, the effect of the genetics and the genetic discoveries of the last um, few years has been really to make it harder to make a. Um, uh, argument about the superiority of one group or another. One of the things that's emerged from the genomic ancient DNA revolution, from this new science of the human past, is um, the realization that human populations today are mixed. Um, this is a very unexpected thing and was not really in people's way of thinking about the world before. But when people think intuitively about human population differences, the way people think about it is they think, oh, there are these differences that I recognize intuitively amongst groups that I see in the world. And they must reflect group differences that go back deep in time to the time that we all share a common ancestral population. But in fact, that's not true. So if you look, for example, 10,000 years ago at the population structure of Eurasia, and uh, you compare it to the population structure of Eurasia today, the group, at that time the populations were just as differentiated from each other as they are today, but the structure was nothing like what it is today. So for example, today West Eurasia, Europe, the Near East, uh, Central Asia, Iran is a region of very low differentiation. The populations genetically are quite similar to each other. But in fact, that reflects over the last 10,000 years a dramatic collapse of four very different populations into each other hunter-gatherers of Europe, ancient Near Easterners, both in the west of the Near East and the east of the Near East, and people from the steppe. Um, these populations, none of them disappeared, but they all mixed in with each other such that it's a large region of low differentiation. There's these people who are uh, ancient North Eurasians uh, who used to be spread over Siberia. They don't exist anymore. They don't exist in unmixed form, but they exist. They've left huge numbers of descendants in India and Europe and the Americas. So there were groups that were highly differentiated at that time, but they're very different from the groups today. And what you would see instead is a lattice of groups in the past which are quite differentiated from each other, but form of mixtures of other quite differentiated groups going back and back and back and back in time. It's mixture all the way down. It's very 
different picture. And I think that's difficult to reconcile with people's intuitive sense of the differences amongst groups, which are more of these pictures of static difference going back a long way. I, I think that what's happened very rapidly, dramatically, um, and um, powerfully in the last few years has been the explosion of genome-wide studies of human history based on modern and ancient DNA. Um, and that's been enabled by the technology of genomics and the technology of ancient DNA. And basically, it's a gold rush right now. So there, it is a new technology, and that technology is being applied to um, everything we can apply it to. And there's many low-hanging fruits, uh, many gold nuggets strewn on the ground that are being picked up very rapidly. That's what's happening now. But I think that what's being very clear and what the archaeologists, who are really scientists, they embrace scientific technology, um, are realizing is that this is a new way to investigate the past. And I think this is going to be embraced by archaeology, by the humanities, by linguistics as a new way of inquiring into the past. And so in five or ten years, this will be integrated properly into um, departments of linguistics, and especially into departments of archaeology as a central way of inquiring into the past. If you are excavating a site and you have skeletal remains of humans or of animals, um, the DNA will allow you to tell you how the people who inhabited the sites or the animals who inhabited the sites or the plants that were raised at the sites relate to those at other sites that have been excavated. It will allow you to tell the sexes of the individuals. It will allow you to tell the family relationships of the individuals. It will allow you to um, understand the uh, uh, details of the population relationships of other groups. It's a little bit like the radiocarbon revolution, which happened beginning in 1949. So uh, uh, Walter Libby invented this technology for estimating directly the dates of samples um, by the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12. And this um, was quickly recognized by archaeologists to be a transformative discovery because it made it possible to obtain an absolute direct date on samples where previously it was only possible to obtain relative dates from. So, for example, Colin Renfrew's career is built on the radiocarbon revolution. It's built on the idea that you can actually get absolute dates on things. And, for example, Colin Renfrew was very impressed and involved in work that demonstrated that the megalithic structures of Europe, these big stone structures of Europe, preceded the pyramids and the ancient uh, large stone structures of the Near East. The previous archaeologists had argued all ex-Orient looks, the best big ideas are always coming from the East. So the big structures of Europe must be derived from the East. They must have come afterward. But it's not true. It was the radiocarbon dated before. So it gave an absolute timescale for history. Archaeologists have fully integrated dating into their work. And archaeologists will also fully integrate um, ancient DNA into their work. What actually may be, you know, I, I actually have a lot of hope here because archaeologists are scientists. So archaeologists are very much more scientists than, that, you know, even though the archaeology is often embedded in the humanities, archaeologists, as part of their training, they learn how to interpret radiocarbon dates, they learn how to interpret isotopic information, and they've embraced science. They are desperate to learn about the past um, with scientific methods um, and, and other methods. Um, and um, they don't have, you know, it's not physics, so they don't have equations very much, but they actually are desperate to use to learn about the past. And I think that it's very clear from talking about them that they're embracing this technology. Now, how this relates to anthropology is a more complicated question, because anthropology has a grounding in the humanities, and, we often, and what we're actually beginning to learn about, as in the case of our work on India, is about past interactions of people. We can understand, for example, from the genetics, we can see that mixtures of events were mediated by sex bias. So I mentioned to you the one in India where 
most of the West Eurasian-related ancestry in India is coming through male ancestors. But more recently, we see evidence of this in African Americans. It's 20% European ancestry, but it's coming three to one from the male side, the European ancestry. If you look in Colombia, in, in mestizos, and people of mixed native and European ancestry and a bit of African ancestry, the European ancestry is coming 20 to one from the male side. So what you're seeing in the imprint of these populations genetically is the history of power inequality, which is usually uh, males of power from one group um, sort of having preferential access to local females, and that's what you see in these groups. Um, you see this again in the Iceland. So Iceland today is a mixture of Scandinavian um, men and British women who were stolen from Britain by, as is documented in the sagas, uh, by these sort of tax evaders from Norway um, who were male. Um, and you see this imprinted in the DNA. Um, so you can see sex bias in the genetic data. Now that's very interesting because it tells you about something about the cultural nature of these interactions. In India, you can see, for example, that there's this profound population mixture event that happens between two to 4,000 years ago. It co corresponds to the time of the composition of the Rig Veda, the oldest Hindu religious text, which is one of the oldest pieces of literature in the world, which describes um, you know, a mixed society where there's people with not entirely Indo-European names who are being incorporated as poets and kings. Um, and so you have that happening, and then you have the ossification of that system into a kind of caste, caste system, which you can see both in the genetics and also reflected in the text. But you can actually establish this with the genetics, especially with ancient DNA, but even in the case of India with present DNA, because we don't yet have ancient DNA from India. So I think that anthropologists will eventually need to use this information, and I think that they will because they've embraced also radiocarbon dating. I think it will be embraced. I think these are serious people, and they'll embrace this type of data.